The following is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. All right, guys, week two. Um, if you don't have a copy, there's some handouts up there that we're going to be working through. Hope you guys had a good week. And just by way of reminder, next week will be the uh, Adult Bible Fellowship, otherwise known as Equipping Hour otherwise known as Bible study, and there was something else that was in there. Uh, American, life development. Was American that? Bowling Federation. Oh, the American Bowling Federation as well. So. And then if you go back far enough, it's Sunday school. Oh, if you go back far enough, it's Sunday school. Yes, yes. So. And maybe we'll call it that at the end of the day. Who knows? Um, but uh, so next week, during the first hour, there won't be any um, adult Bible fellowship or bowling, but during the second hour, we will have, it'll be an hour and a half, so the first half hour, plus or minus, will be uh, just like time of uh, fellowship, prayer requests, and as I said, if anybody wants to lead us in music, you're more than happy to lead a song or two, that would be fine, but it's going to be structured more like a small group, and then after that, we'll continue on through the teaching time, so that'll be next Sunday, and it'll be on that side. So it'll be lower level two and three. So this here will be for the family, for kids, uh, small families with small kids. So if you do happen to come to this side and you feel very out of place because you don't have small kids, then you'll know, ah, I should be on the other side of that accordion wall. So everything will be facing that way next week um, as, we, as we start off, just so you know. If we want to cry, we come here. Right? Yeah, so if you do want to cry, this is the spot, right? First service gets to you, just come and hang out here in the second service, and you can weep. Um, but uh, So we're continuing on uh, biblical ethics. As you can see <coughs> at the top of the page, week two, major ethical theories and ethical norms. Uh, just by way of review on the first page there, um, as I said last week, the challenge which is placed upon every Christian is to live as Christ in every area of their life during every moment of their life. Um, and that, that's, the, that's the normal Christian life, right? And the normal Christian life is also that we don't do that because we can't, because we sin, because we fail. And so then part of the normal Christian life is that of confession and repentance and continuing to walk on with Christ. Very similar to um, you know, the sermon that was today, right? Um, and as you find yourself in those situations, what are you, what are you doing as your faith is being tested? Uh, and then just the last major bullet point there, 2 Peter 3.17, once again, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard. That's that imperative, that active command. We are to always be on guard. Why? You have that so that, or for the purpose of, that you're not carried away. And so to be carried away, uh, once again, is that passive verb, something that's happening to you. And so you can either be on guard active or you can be carried away passively. There is no in-between uh, in the Christian life. And so how are we carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from our, uh, your own steadfastness? So the, the, this class will look at these systems and theories that are into place. In the next three classes, we're going to be taking on some of these things to show you exactly what the error of unprincipled men is and how we can fall from our own steadfastness if we're carried away by their unprincipled error. So we want to take real-life stuff that's going on now, and we want to say, how can we apply biblical ethics to this? Um, everything from you know, uh, abortion, euthanasia, doctor-assisted suicide, artificial intelligence. Um, we got our, our first, I actually had my first um, encounter with 
the, uh, the art artificial intelligence in academia. So on the syllabus, there's actually a whole page now in one of the classes that I'm taking that outlines the proper and improper use of artificial intelligence. And so uh, if you uh, have you know, people in school or you're in school, the temptation is there. I mean, I, I've, I've seen um, these programs write fantastic term papers in the matter of seconds. And uh, you, it's, it's original. You can't find it anywhere. And so um, you can set out the, the typeface that you want, the spacing, the parameters of a paper. And within seconds, you've got a 10-page paper that would be an astounding paper to turn in. And so how can we, and that's just part of artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence, you guys all interact with it on a daily basis, whether you know it or not. And so how the Christian can respond to these things, aside from buying a bunker in North Dakota, uh, we want to be able to, which are cheap now, but um, we want to be able to interact with these things and, and live in the world where God has placed us. And as, as the sermon said this morning, we don't want to live in fear. Uh, we, we can't be fearing these things, but we have to be able to face them. So that's what we want to look over, though. So we're going to apply what we've learned last week and what we'll learn today, and, uh, and we'll, we'll compare it to what God's Word has to say, and then how it is that you know, we, can, uh, uh, we can thrive in the face of, of the world and culture around us. Uh, so on the top of page two, just an introduction to our class here this morning. <clears throat> we're going to look at some of the major ethical theories and ethical norms which exists in our culture today. Uh, and I believe that when we know what the world is thinking, we're better able to understand why they're making the decisions they are. And I find like one of the, one of the I don't want to say problems, but, but one of the issues that Christians face is we, we like to go at the fruit, right? But we oftentimes neglect the root of it. So you may be able to win a battle of the fruit. So what that means is, you have a friend who's an evolutionist. If I can just, if I can just cre uh, convince them that creation is real, well, what does that do? Absolutely nothing. You don't get into heaven because you believe in the six days of creation, right? So it's not a fruit issue. It's a root issue, meaning why do they believe in evolution, right? Why do they believe in euthanasia? Why do they believe in abortion? So, yes, we, we fight against abortion. It's obviously a heinous, heinous act. But... That's just the fruit of a belief system that's underneath it, and that's what we need to get at. Right? <coughs> and so that's what we're going to be we're going to be looking at. And ultimately, as you see the third bullet point there, it's a worldview problem. I would say it's not as chaotic as what we're led to to think that it is, because it's stemming from a belief system that people have, and their actions reflect that belief system. And so it's the last sentence there. We all have the same evidence, meaning we can look around and we can see the same things. When you, you can, uh, I went to, a, or my wife and I went to a, a, a Answers in Genesis conference once, and I remember Ken Ham saying, we have the exact same evidence, we just interpret it differently. That's a worldview issue, right? So you, you, we're not taking different evidence, and we're saying, we believe in creation because of this, and the evolutionist says, well, I don't believe in that evidence. They're saying, no, I believe in that evidence. I just don't believe in what, you, in what your worldview is and how you interpret that evidence, right? And so that's what we want to get at, is at this worldview issue. Um, and, uh, and we'll look at that as why does the world believe what they believe? Why do we see the decline of our society right now? How are we getting to this spot? Um, and uh, it, it'll amaze you that it's actually a lot simpler uh, than what you're led to believe. And then just the, the next part there, I just wanted to cover this from last week quickly. I wanted to go over it before we get to the more practical stuff. 
And just so you guys understand, the Bible's authority is higher than all other authorities for ethics. So just so you understand where I'm coming from, where our church comes from, is the, the Bible is our ultimate authority, right? So we're not looking for authority from somewhere else, and, and, and uh, those things are helpful. We'll just look through these quickly. Um, tradition and church history, once again, certainly helpful, but we're not saying because they've always done this in the church, we're doing it today. Or because historically, this is what Christians believe, this is what we believe today. So what we want to say is because the Bible says this, this is what we believe. If it aligns with church history, or if we can be helped by church history, that's fantastic. But we don't hold to something simply because the church is always held to that. Um, Human reason, and and I like this, uh, human reason is one of the greatest enemies of biblical authority. Our reason is certainly a useful and helpful tool, but it can never usurp what the Bible says. And so human reason gets into the way of a lot of things. That can't be because of this, is what oftentimes people will say. I don't believe that because it doesn't make sense. As if everything you believe has to make sense to you. Right. And so we take, we, we take what the Bible says and we set it aside and we say, unless that makes sense to me, I can't actually believe it. And what we're actually doing is, is uh, wandering into what Todd talked about this morning, liberal theology. Because miracles don't make sense, because Jesus walking on water doesn't make sense, I can't actually believe it. Until that makes sense to me, as if God owes you that, then I'll actually believe it, Right. And so we want to make sure we're not relying on our human reason. God has certainly gifted us with wisdom and reason, and those are great tools, but they are not infallible, right? Uh, experience. Experience is one of those things that is super hard to get past as well. You know, the older you get, the more experience that you have. The younger you are, the more experience you think you have. <laughs> and so somewhere in the middle there, we tend to rely on our experience for what we believe our reality to be. But, as you see the bullet point there, our experiences are never quite how we have remembered. And they're usually based on subjective feelings. When we think way in the past, you know, there's a reason why the the police want to get to somebody within a short amount of time as a witness. Because then it's fresh in their mind. And I don't know the time frame, but I'm sure it diminishes over a period of time. People have studied it and find that every... You know, five hours or whatever, you lose a percentage of it. And then you know what your mind does? It starts to fill in gaps. And it starts to place things in there that you think were true, and it's subjected to you. And so that's why we need something that's objective, which is the Word of God, as opposed to subjective. So our experiences are helpful, and our experiences are real, but we can't base what we believe on our experience. We have to base what we believe and hold to by the word of God. And then the last thing, uh, expected results of a certain event should not be our authority for doing something. Now, this is an interesting one because the expected results of an event should actually be part of why we're doing things. What should the Christian's expected result be of any event or decision that we make? Do all things for the glory of God. So our expected result should be that God is glorified. Right? But it's not the ultimate reason why we're doing something is to glorify God. Right, That's why we do anything that we do. But the, what we're talking about here is to say, well, here's what I expect to happen, whatever that physical thing is. So I'm going to do that because this is what I expect to happen. Well, we can't, we can't do that because we're not God. And so a great example for you, which we'll talk about next week, 
you know, when uh, uh, one of the, the debates among abortion is when a woman goes into labor and they say, if the baby's life or the mother's life, who do you want us to save? So now you've, you've gone into an expected end result ethic, as if the doctor is able to tell you which one is going to live. I remember when we were pregnant with our son, I think it was our daughter actually, and the, the doctor had said, if this happens, who do you want us to save? I remember saying, I'm not signing any paperwork. We're not going to, I'm not having you choose who lives and who dies. Right, and so then we have to say, wow, well, wait a minute. So you'll let anybody die, you'll do this, right? So we'll talk about that next week. But the expected result can't ultimately be the ethic that we're living by. So that was from last week. I just wanted to cover the authority that we use is what Scripture says, even when it's uncomfortable, right? We have to make sure that we're relying on what the Bible says. If our ultimate goal is to glorify God in all that we do, then we have to use the means that he's given us. And the means that he's given us is through the Word of God. And as was talked about this morning, by faith. Do we have the faith to know that God is ultimately going to work all things for his good? So, major ethical theories. <clears throat> Just a, a few ways that the world, we could say, interprets data. Right? Every day we make choices. We have to ask ourselves, on what basis are those choices being made? Some of you make thousands of choices in a day without even knowing it. Right? Some of you make very... Uh, deliberate choices throughout the day. And so we have to ask ourselves, what basis are we making these choices? What makes our choices good or bad? In other words, what's the criteria that we have to say that a choice is good or a choice is bad? And just a few of the ways that people interpret data, if you look at the top of page three, uh, two major primary categories, uh, consequentialist and deontological ethical theories to which a, and there's a third category, which is uh, like personal, but we'll look at that in a minute. So teleological, uh, teleos means like the end. It's a Greek word for like, what is the end? What's the goal, right? Um, and so consequentialist. And so it says there, what is morally good or bad, right or wrong, obligatory or forbidden, is determined by the value produced when it is done. So if somebody were to tell you that, just that sentence right there. I make my decisions based upon the value that's produced when the act is done. What should your first question be? Well, you're saying that the end justifies the means. That's, right, so that's, that's what you're saying. What would your question to them be? I mean, that, in that statement right there, when I read that statement, I have a question that pops into my head immediately. To what end? What was the act? Who, right, but who said something value? Somebody said it. Who determines the value? Who determines the value? See, this is the worldview issue that we're talking about. So what they're saying is, I get to determine the value. That's a huge statement. So if I believe murdering somebody is for the better of the group, my, that's my value, and I believe that our group is going to value the most by getting rid of this individual, then that's what I do. And somebody else, that guy that I'm going to murder, says, well, I don't, do I have anything to say in this? Like, I don't actually value that. Well, no, we believe that by getting rid of you, that's going to benefit our society the most. That's going to benefit our culture the most. So the ends, as we say, justify the means. Maybe you've heard those things. But I really want you to understand the fundamental worldview issue. Who gets to determine the good, the bad? Who gets to determine the value? That's what we're striving at. So then you have deontological, non-consequentialist theory. So deontological approach 
the term derived from the Greek word deon, meaning what is due, asks only about the intrinsic rightness or wrongness of an act, meaning our duty is to do that which is intrinsically right. So what would you ask somebody that said, I only do what's intrinsically right? Who determines what's right? Who determines what's right? Even intrinsically, what they're saying is that thing that's inside of you is determining what is right. Well, what does the Bible say is inside of you? Wickedness. wickedness. So now we're relying on somebody filled with wickedness to tell us what's actually determined to be right. Yeah. So in a secular society which we live in, um, it, it, would it be fair to say that majority, the majority is the, is the determining factor? Yeah, I would say that's certainly part of it. Um, the majority would be the determining factor, yes. Uh, you, you can certainly see how that's coming through. But I would say our society has turned, which we'll talk about here, into from the majority to the loudest voice. I mean, we, we're believers. We, we, have a, we have a worldview that is uh, separate and distinct from society. Yes. Correct. And so, so we live in part of this, as part of this worldview with a different values yeah. basis than they have. Yes. Yeah, which I would say in our day and age today, maybe more so than 50 years ago, is starting to become far more evident that the worldview systems are, are very, very different. So, yeah. yeah. And perhaps a silver star is worth giving to this person who says they're motivated by doing what's right. Right. So there is that. Right. Yeah, because I would say, you know, there's civil rights. I mean, like, the, uh, people aren't saying do right things. So I don't want you to think that, right? Like, there are people that are not saying they're doing it for the wrong reasons and motivation, but they can do right things. And I would say people are saying, I'm just striving to do what is right. The problem isn't that they're striving to do what's right. The problem is the, the world view that they have on what actually is right. So, yeah, I would certainly commend somebody for saying, I want to do what is right. You know, you have a, the unbeliever who starts a, an orphanage or a school or, you know, some digs wells in Africa, something like that, which is fantastic. Um, they want to do what's right. They just don't have the full picture because they're not born again. So, yeah, I would absolutely agree. Isn't that the, even the people that, you know, pick up our trash or pave the roads? I mean, yes. It's the goodness of God. Yes. Isn't it? Yeah. The, the blessing of the righteous and the unrighteous. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then you have the uh, personalistic or personal theories, um, ethicists who stress the impact of a given action or policy on people, making that their primary criterion for good or evil. Uh, for them, duty and ends can be important, but the key is whether people are hurt or helped, whether they grow closer or are pushed further apart. And so we're seeing this actually more in our society today, where they're saying, how can we pass laws? How can we... Uh, govern the people to get them more as one group, right? So we've, we've kind of confused our ethnic diversities with racism, right? And so what we said, if there's any diversity between people, then you must be racist. Well, that's crazy. It's never been like that before. We all have different likes and dislikes, right? Uh, and so they've, they've kind of mixed these together and now said, if you're not, if you yourself are not participating in everything that every ethnicity does, then you're obviously racist. Uh, and so that, those are the laws that you're seeing coming out now to try to get everybody just blending into one uh, kind of pot as opposed to what America was built on, which was the mixing pot. So you had various ethnicities and groups of people, and that's what actually made it so great, was that you could come here, you could still be your same you know, culture that you had instead of trying to blend in. So this is what we're seeing here now. 
Then you have the mixed theory, and um, really just is from benevolent from benevolence stems principles such as principle of utility, the the things that need to be done, principle of not injuring anyone, principle of not interfering with another's liberty, from justice, uh, which follows principles such as equality before the law. And this theory is deontological as it, it consults rules and, and it's teleological because it's saying these rules to live by that best fit utility and justice. So this we're also seeing here, meaning it's kind of a, kind of a forced benevolence, right? Um, and so they're saying, here's how we're going to make laws now. So they benefit people for the purpose of this. Like that's that end, that teleological, like what's the, what's the end goal? And so that's this kind of mixing them together. So now in our day and age, we're, we're seeing kind of this wholehearted mixture of what's going on here as they're trying to, you, you can see it because they're trying to please various groups by passing different laws for, or different regulations for each group. And so how can we best please everybody? And that's what we're seeing here. Benevolence, um, you know, just read an article yesterday. I showed my wife. They have, you know, in the state of Michigan, was it 270,000 electric vehicle chargers for low-income housing? And it's going to be paid for uh, by our taxes. And But the vast majority, if not all the people who own electric vehicles, don't live in low-income housing. And so I just asked them. I, I would never own one personally, um, but... I ask myself, why would why would we spend you know tax money on these things? I don't know the end of it, um, and uh, but those are the things that are coming down to show that everything is fair, right? So yeah, your electric vehicle may be sixty, seventy thousand dollars, and the government's giving you X amount of rebate for it, and then we're going to make sure that there's a charging station for it at your block so you can take care of these things. And so that's just one example of what this would be. It's, they're looking at it as benevolence. Like we're helping out a certain people group who can't have a charging station. And my question would be, why do they need a charging station, right, if they don't actually have a car to charge? And they can't afford the car because it's out of their means. Right, yeah. I can't afford a car. Electric car. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And so that's what we're seeing now is kind of a mixture of this. Um, And then what I want to just give you kind of a brief overview of each of those. And as we look through... The things that are happening in our world today, um, you'll be able to catch on to say, oh, that's this kind of thinking or that's this kind of thinking, right? Uh, then on page three, you have ethical norms. Uh, when most people think of ethical norms or ethics or morals, they think of rules distinguishing between right and wrong. And just a few of those, the golden rule, right? Do you want to tell others is you have to do you. A code of professional conduct like the Hippocratic Oath, first of all, do no harm. Religious creeds like the Ten Commandments. Or wise aphorisms like the sayings of Confucius. So when we think of something moral, obviously in most of our minds, I would have to assume we're trying to distinguish between what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong. I mean, that's just a fairly simple um, statement. And so first of all, we have antinomianism, which means there are no laws. Um, So it would be simply when somebody says, live to what you think is the best. So there's, there are no laws governing right or wrong. Each of us inside of us have a sense of right and wrong, and so that's what we live by, right? Um, if in your mind you can't think of a whole host of problems that stem from that way of thinking, um, just, just marinate on it for the next 30 seconds. Um, so it doesn't give us any guidance, and I like I found this quote. I don't know where it came from, but it says, Man is an empty bubble floating on the sea of nothingness. <laughs> that's a great hope. 
And that's antinomianism. Anti against uh, nomo meaning namas meaning law, right? So against the law or there is no law. So do what you think is right, right? Next one, generalism. <clears throat> there are no universal norms. So they would say, you, you would hear things like, for the most part, lying is wrong. Well, for the most part, we shouldn't do this. Generally speaking, this is, this is how, what I believe, right? And so they're not nailing themselves down to a right or wrong. What they're saying is, yeah, I think that there's some things out there that we should adhere to, but nothing strictly we should adhere to. Um, situationalism, I'm sure you guys all know this one. There are no universally, uh, there is one universal norm, and that universal norm is it depends on the situation that you're in. So you can do as you wish, but it's governed by what the situation is that you are in. You know, the situational ethics. There are definitely right and wrongs, and it definitely depends on what you think you should do whenever you're faced with any situation. And then you have these two uh, conflicting and non-conflicting uh, absolutism, and we'll talk about these more as we go on. Um, but there are many non-conflicting universal norms, meaning there are things that are always wrong. So God has given us absolute moral norms that cannot be altered, like thou shall not murder. Right? It doesn't say thou shall not kill. We're not anti-military or anti-self-defense. We believe in capital punishment that takes place at the hands of the government. What we're talking about is murdering. You can't go to your neighbor's house because he hasn't returned your hammer and murder him. Right? That's what we're talking about here. So there are ethical norms which are universal, universal in nature. And as you see the last sentence underneath that bullet point, the norms never produce more conflicts, meaning that by following one ethical norm that has to be taken place, you are not then sinning by breaking another ethical norm. And this word gets a little bit hairy. I'll give you the example we used last week. You know, you're hiding Jews in your attic, and the guy comes. Do you say, yes, they're up there so they can be murdered? Or do you say, no, they're not there and you lie? No, they're not there. Lie. <laughs> yeah, some people it's an easy answer. Some people it's not. Right? I don't know if you ever heard the whole story that took place during that time, but the sister had they hiding Jews under the table, right, in the floorboards. And they said, where are your brothers? And they said, oh, they're under the table. And so the Nazis came and took the tablecloth off, and they weren't there. Well, did she lie to them? Did she deceive them? They were under the table. It was just in a secret room. It wasn't actually under the table as they thought it would be. So is deception intentionally deceiving somebody? Is that a sin? Or is giving them to be murdered? Is that a sin? Right? And so this is what they're saying. There's, no, there's nothing that conflicts. There's always a way to, to be able to explain. And then you have conflicting absolutism. Once again, they would say their line is never right. But, and you see that sentence there, while ideally the universal norms do not or would not conflict, in reality they do because reality is not ideal. And we'll talk about these as we go through. So even if you're not fully understanding them, as uh, these are the two main ones that most... Christians would hold to um, within a system of ethics. And so we want to flesh these out a little bit. Um, but you can see the last sentence there. Ethical conflicts then are the natural outworking of the evil conditions of the real world. And so they may sin, or they may say, you know, you've heard the saying, the lesser of two evils. So sin may be a viable path forward, but they would say it's not the ultimate sin. So you're, you're then starting to rank different sins and you're saying, yes, this sin is permissible because this one is not. 
So you're taking the lesser of two evils. Yeah. Some of these, I think, fit into, um, there was Hegel, the philosopher Hegel, um, posited Hegelian dialectic, and you know, two, two different things resolve to one single thing. And I think that some of these kind of fit into that. Hmm? And, and I think Schaefer tracks how Hegel's views and kind of made their way through all the different aspects of society, mm -hmm. resulting in the kind of lack of absolutism that we have now. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, that's where we are now with the lack of absolutism, right? Yeah, so, which we'll get to in a minute, but yes, that's correct. And then the last one there, the hierarchy or hierarchalism, that there is an order of universal norms, meaning lying is sometimes right. And the universal norms are arranged on a scale of good, ranging from the least to the most good. A hierarchy of norms based on their significance. Um, and so they would say you always follow the higher good. right? And so once again, what should your question be? What's, who determines a higher good? right? And so how would you follow a higher good? Is that up to you or do you rely on society to tell you that? And so those are just some of the, these are the, probably the main ways, these six ways that um, our culture views an ethical system. And, and like I said, as we work through some of the issues, we're going to uh, look at these as well. Uh, and so then what best characterizes our culture today? And I like this first paragraph that, um, uh, that he writes. He says, until recently, Christianity was under fire at most universities because it was thought to be unscientific and consequently untrue. Today, at least for the past 30 years, Christianity has been often rejected merely because it claims to be true. Increasingly, academics regard anyone claiming to know truth as intolerant and arrogant. Amen. Amen. <laughs> so what accounted for this bizarre and growing consensus? It's called postmodernism. And presently, we are both in a postmodern and post-postmodern age. Some call it the post-Christian age. Some even call it a post-secular age. Maybe you've heard it called the post-truth age. We don't want to know what actual truth is. We just want to do whatever it is we want to do, or we're told to do. So what are we talking about here? It's called pluralism. Um, pluralism is simply the recognition that different cultures believe different things. Generally speaking, that's fine. Cultures, that's what makes cultures unique, is they believe different things. We're not talking at the spiritual level, we're talking just at a fundamental level, a civil level. It's okay to believe different things. I mean, when we lived in Uganda, our house girl thought that yellow onions made you... Red onions. Yeah, yellow onions made you die. So we made a, she made a soup once with yellow onions, and she begged us not to eat it. After we ate it, she saw we lived. She brought it back to her village, and she ate it, and she said, look, we're not going to die, and they threw it all away. They said, no, they only ate that because they're from America. <laughs> right, and so it's okay to believe that yellow onions make you die. It's fine. Like, you don't have, we're not going to change the world that they have to eat yellow onions. But my point is just that. We're not, those things are fine. What we're talking about is a fundamental belief in, in, in uh, what is good and bad. Um, and so that's the pluralism is the best distilled in this popular mantra. That may be your truth, but it's not my truth. Maybe you've heard that. That's good that you believe that. I'm glad that you found that. So that's not a good thing, by the way. There's no such thing as absolute truth. Right. Absolutely. There's no such thing as absolute truth. <laughs> So you see that next quote, pluralism in a general sense says there can be multiple perspectives or truth that exist simultaneously, even if some of those perspectives are contradictory. It's contrasted with monism or monism, 
which says only one kind of thing exists, dualism, which says there's only two kinds of things, for example, mind and body, and nihilism, which says that no things exist. And then pay attention to what's being said here. Multiple perspective or multiple truths can exist simultaneously. I hope you understand that that is just absolutely absurd, right? Especially if you're an engineer and you're sitting here in the room. <laughs> Can you have two truths which are equally true? And I like what Walter Martin says in his book, Kingdom on the Cult. He says, truth by definition is exclusive. If truth were all exclusive, nothing would be false. So you understand that. If everything is true, then nothing is false. So we live in a world just full of truth, and nothing can ever be false, which we know that statement in and of itself is false. Our cultures long ago come into the church. And the church has bitten off all that it could with the rise of questioning everything in the culture so it has happened in the church. And so our culture now is based on the fact that we can't actually know truth. And if you were to say that you did know truth, you would just seem arrogant and they would you'd be repulsive to them to think that you would actually be able to know the difference between what is true and what is not true. And then to be able to tell somebody that they're false, to tell somebody that what they believe is not true. There is no, nothing more reprehensible than that. Because you're saying that you know better than they do, and you don't even know them. And so what has happened here, you see uh, the next uh, line is there, the deconstruction of truth. Postmodern philosopher Rorty asserts, truth is made rather than found. You guys understand what that means? Like truth is made, it's actually quite an astounding statement. Because if you were to ask a Christian, and I'm assuming that's you, we would say, do you find truth or do you make truth? Say it loud. Find find truth. Where do we find truth? In the Bible. And they would say, well, that's your truth. My truth I actually make up from me, inside of me. So we've gone from, so can you, can you start to see the worldview? This is what I really want to point out. The worldview has shifted from being on God to on whom? Themselves. So the greatest and highest power in all of the universe is now me. If truth is only found... Yeah, right. <laughs> I was saying that in the third person. Um, if truth is only found, or is only made and not found, and I'm the one who's in charge of making it, not only is that a heavy responsibility, but can there be a more prideful statement? And so that's the worldview that we're facing. Man has set himself up as the highest standard. And so you're going and you're telling him, actually, you're not the highest standard. God is. And imagine what that does to somebody's ego. Okay, Hitler. Right. Mm -hmm. I will be like the most high. I will be like the most high. And that's already been said once. So this deconstruction of truth, very, very important. That when we get to practical applications that you realize this. The role of the intellectual is to deconstruct truth claims in order to liberate society. I found that so fascinating. We are liberating society from fact and truth. So you can live as you were always intended to live. You know, it's, it's always fascinating to me to see families that kids are in a structured family versus kids are in a family that the parents think that they can just let them do whatever they want. The kids in a structured family are always happier because they have structure. They know the difference between right and wrong. They know what they can get away with, what they can't. They know the consequences for doing it. And the ones that are just living however they want to live are always just the most discontent kids. They're angry. They're angry. 
And it's not just because we sit back and say, oh, kids need structure, which is true, but they need to know the difference between what's true and what's not true. And so now you're seeing those kids growing up to be adults, which are saying, we don't need to know what's truth. I can do whatever I want to do. And what's happening? They're angry. They're angry at anybody who comes to them and says, here's a set of rules that you need to live by. We need to deconstruct this so we can liberate it. And this next quote here, a hermeneutics of suspicion is then applied to all areas of life. The postmodern mind is one of suspicion. They approach a text, everything in life and culture, not to find out what it objectively means, meaning the authorial intent, but they're trying to unmask what is actually hiding in this. They're not looking for meaning in what a statement is saying. They're trying to say, what is this trying to cover up? I don't actually believe what the statement says. I'm going to find out what they're trying to hide behind it. And how do we see that playing out? Maybe you've heard the term systemic racism. Every law and rule that's been put on the books for the last hundred years is only because of systemic racism to keep down those people who are not in power. So therefore, we need to cast off all the laws and rules. Why do we need credit scores? You don't need to have a credit score to buy a house. That's insane. You don't need to know how much money I make. You just need to give me the house. Right now, they have little extra money tacked onto mortgages that go into a little pot. So people that have low credit scores are able to afford a home. I don't know if you even know that or not. If you got a mortgage in the last two years or so, a year or whatever it is, I forget what it was, a little percentage was added on there that goes into a governmental pot. So if your credit score is below 400 or 5, I don't even know, whatever it is, then that money from you, because you're privileged to have a high credit score, goes into a pot, and then that's given to people who have a low credit score. What if you don't want to give it? It's automatically tacked on. It's the law. Every mortgage that's done, pat is it two years? Did somebody know? Two years ago? They passed it? What if you take them to court and say, I'm not going to pay? <laughs> that's beyond the scope of my knowledge. <laughs> but yeah, these little things that were put into place, because it's systemically racist to have somebody need a certain credit score. What does a credit score tell you? Well, essentially, it's a snapshot of how you manage your money. You know, just at its basic fundamental, we'll just say that. So a bank that's giving you two, three, four hundred thousand dollars wants to have a, a little bit of an idea of how you're going to manage their money. So they do put a credit score rating, whether or not you agree with it or not. It doesn't matter. It's there. And so they would say, no, that's racist. It's not. It doesn't matter how I manage my money. I can do whatever I want. Right. So now it goes from we need to we need to make sure that you know these people are paying back loans or whatever to saying no. We need to make sure everybody has the same opportunity, even if it means. We're going to do something that presumably can be a little bit absurd. And as you see the next one, truth is not objectively real, for all truth is merely constructed by every culture. Truth is relative to the community in which we participate. Therefore, truth is, is made, not found. So this is another big one in our, in our country today. You can't tell somebody else their truth because you don't... You can't tell somebody an objective truth because their truth is found where they actually live. How they interpret the world is their truth. And so the, the uh, bolded out one there, further, only those within the community have the right to criticize fellow members' brands of truth. So we can't tell somebody, hey, what you believe is wrong if we're not actually from that community or culture because we don't understand the community and culture that they're in. And then little imagination is needed to see this radical relativism as a direct challenge to the Christian gospel, right? 
So when you go in with the gospel and you share the gospel with people and they say, hey, that's great. I'm glad that you found that, but this is my God. And we say, no, actually, let me tell you the God of the Bible, the true God. Well, no, that's your God. And it's very offensive that you would come in here and tell me what I believe is wrong. And then just some, um, some things that are affected there. All texts, any text, the United States Constitution, the Bible, whatever it is, are, are subjected to criticism and dissection in the name of liberation. I like that, that last sentence there. Texts which are not pleasing to the postmodern mind are rejected as oppressive, patriarchal, heterosexist, homophobic, or deformed by some other political or ideological bias. Going back to the destruction of truth, hmm? um, with your comment of how this has seeped into the church, a lot of these same ideas and principles exist as social norms within church behavior rather than upholding a like speaking the truth in love and addressing sin how do you confront when it is seeped in under the guise of social norms and just cultural behavior how do you balance that in a church culture when trying to address sin and how do we live our lives and also preferential issues does that make sense? Yeah, and that's that's a great question, and I think we'll be addressing that as we get into okay. more of the practical stuff. Yep. Um, but just kind of uh, a 30-second uh, answer would be all of that starts with uh, the leadership of the church okay. and the preaching of the word and what's being taught. And, uh, and if, if we show our dependence on the word of God, then that hopefully goes out to the people that says, hey, our leadership depends on God's word. We too need to depend on God's word. Uh, and so you are right, though, a lot of times, because we spend, I mean, all of us uh, spend the vast majority of our days in our secular culture. I mean, like, because you work there, you, you know, you go to the grocery store, you see stuff on TV, all of that. So we ourselves need to fight that tendency um, on a personal level, and then we have to be able to welcome biblical Christianity into our lives as people do come to us and confront us with that. Uh, but yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, I hope we can flesh that out a little bit more over the next few weeks. Um, and then uh, you know the next bullet point: our culture has lately taught an entire generation the most important value is tolerance. Um, and so you can read that. I want to uh, jump down <clears throat> uh, one, two, three, four, five, six bullet points from the bottom. Speaking of tolerance, it says, in other words, the world has decided there's no truth except what one believes, uh, what one wants to believe. Nobody's allowed to challenge that truth unless they are from the same culture or subculture. If you're not tolerant of what others believe, then you're a part of the problem. And these, uh, this quote here I thought was really good. Tolerance does not mean tolerance. It means first acceptance, second celebration. That is totalitarianism. You, are not only, you not only have to live with what you may differ with, dear citizen, you have to celebrate it or pay a steep price. And so you see that in businesses, right? So if a business isn't supporting the LGBTQ agenda, um, then they're looked down upon if they're not if they're not not just supporting it but actually celebrating it, right? And so you get to hear of uh, the businesses that support these things, and then they get funding for it. Uh, and so if you want to get funding, then you have to support certain agendas. Um, and then uh, the the next um, quote there from Archbishop Chaput, he says, "Evil preaches tolerance until it's dominant, then it tries to silence good." And I thought that was really good. Um, you know, evil does preach tolerance. Just tolerate, just tolerate us. Let us live how we want to live. They say, okay, you can live how you want to live. But then what happens? It says, okay, now you're on the wrong side of history. Have you ever heard that before? Um, you're going to be on the wrong side of history if you continue to believe that. And then they say, well, actually, the cultural norm is to live this way. You're the one that's living strangely. 
And all they wanted to do is be accepted 10, 15, 20 years ago, but now we're on the, the other side of, of, uh, of good, meaning that they're calling it evil. So Bob, within the last two weeks, this is the first time that I've seen in probably 10 or 15 years, an article was written about some companies that are now getting away from DEI, mm -hmm. which is diversity, exclusion, and inclusiveness, because it's hurting their business, hurting profits, hurting employee morale, so people are starting to abandon it. Oh, well, we'll see. Which is like, I don't we'll know, see, it's, I mean, I, it is shocking though, that's the first article I've seen. That they're leaving it. That they're leaving it. Wow. Good for them. So there might be hope. There might be hope. <laughs> yeah, it's, so here's the thing, and I, and I think, Chris, this is a really great point, because what are the two worldviews that are clashing, just in that statement right there? Think about it. What are the two things? Merit. Money. So they're saying, do we want to be politically correct or do we want to make money? Why does a business exist? Any business on the planet exists to make money. So now what you're saying is, oh, you're not going to make money, but you get to promote our agenda. And they're like, the, you have, you know, obviously in large companies, you have stockholders and shareholders, you have board of directors, you have all the different officers, executive offices that are making millions of dollars a year. And you're going to come in and say, hey, if you don't put this rainbow lapel pin on, then we're not going to support you. But if you do, you're going to lose 10% profit every quarter. They're going to say, ah, let's take a step back. We're not here to promote whatever this is. We're here to make money. So now you get to see two worldviews clash, which I love. I love seeing that. I think it's great. I think, I think when, when secular worldviews, when you think one is so great and all of a sudden it clashes with another one, like you think of feminism and transgenderism, you couldn't have two worldviews clashing harder right there. Because the feminist says women are at the top of the chain, and the transgender says no, men who claim to be women are at the top of the chain. So essentially, men are back at the top of the chain. I think it's fantastic. You get to see just these, these hypocritical worldviews when they come up against another hypocritical worldview, who's going to win? In that case, it's money. Because there's not a business out there that wants to go out of business. You don't start a company to lose money and go out of business. You start a company to make money. Right, and so now you get to see this, and we'll look at that. I think that's a, a, a great segue. Um, we'll look at that starting next week is, you know, um, what does this look like in our own society? So the last couple of pages we'll go over next week, um, just talking about the, you know, you can read over them, the, the thinking and acting differently and talking about um, why Christians believe in, a, you know, the doctrinal basis for our belief. And we'll look at those, and then we'll dive into uh, next week, look at page 8. We're going to look at abortion, doctor-assisted suicide for those who are terminally ill, elderly, um, doctor-assisted suicide for the elderly, and, and for disabilities, people with disabilities. So um, if you're not aware of it, a lot of laws have been passed, especially in Canada recently, um, to, uh, uh, to murder people who, you know, children, actually kids, whose parents think that they're better off dead than, than actually living. Um, and it's uh, not far from, from coming here into the States as well. So we'll, we'll tackle those. Is there ever a time where... It is biblically permissible to end the life of, of somebody like that. So let's pray, and we'll close our time together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity that it has. We thank you, Lord, uh, just for the benefit that we have as believers by following your word. And, uh, Lord, we pray that you would uh, just continue to bless our study. I pray for next week, Lord, as uh, we meet for two services. You would bless our efforts there as well. And uh, Lord, we just ask you to go before us this week, make our path straight. Uh, Lord, may we just have your joy as we seek to live in a culture that is hostily against us. Lord, we thank you. We love you. and just pray that you bless us in Christ's name. Amen.
All right, guys, have a good week. You've been listening to Presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.